Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We read this passage of Scripture in connection with Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism and the truth of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting of which our Lord speaks here in this discourse. Let's begin reading at verse 17 to the end of the chapter. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man. But these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? We turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 22, this morning to find the doctrine for the sermon. Lord's Day 22 asks, What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? That not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? That since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein forever. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we consider the truths of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, which are the last two articles of our Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. We come to the end of the articles of the Apostles' Creed this morning and our consideration of those things which are necessary for Christians to believe those things which are revealed and promised by God in the scriptures, the basic truths of Christianity. We confess as Christians that we believe the life everlasting and the resurrection of the body are true. These are truths. These are things that will happen. Many people today do not believe that these are true. Many people who live in supposedly and previously Christian lands, but which are no longer Christian lands, do not believe the resurrection of the body or the life everlasting, but believe that these are mere fantasies concocted by the Christian religion and that there will be no resurrection or life everlasting. But as Christians, we confess every Sunday, I believe. I believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I believe that. And I believe that not simply because I want to believe it. I believe it because God has revealed it and promised it in the scriptures, in his holy 
infallible, and inspired word. That's why I believe it. And I rest, my faith rests, on that testimony of the scriptures. As we have found, for example, in the passage that we read this morning, where God inspired John to write infallibly the testimony of Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 25, Verily, verily I say unto you, Jesus is saying, Verily, truly, this is true. The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Marvel not, verse 28, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. On the basis of scripture, on the basis of the words of Christ, we confess, I believe, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But there's more than that to our confession. Because as we have seen before, our confession of all of these articles of the Apostles' Creed is a personal confession, a deeply personal confession. We do not merely confess to believe that there will be a resurrection and that there will be something called life everlasting. But what we confess, as the Catechism instructs us, is this. I believe that after this life, my soul, will be immediately taken up to Christ my head. I believe that on the great day of the Lord, my body will be raised from the dead and reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. And I believe that in eternity, I will enjoy perfect salvation, which my eye has never seen yet, my ears have never yet heard, And it's never even entered into my heart to conceive or imagine how wonderful it will be. I believe I will inherit that great treasure. Do you have that personal comfort? And do you make that personal confession? Let's consider together life everlasting in body and soul. That's our theme. Let's notice in the first place the promise of everlasting life. Secondly, the truth of the intermediate state. What is that? And then thirdly, the hope of the resurrection. According to the scriptures, the promise of the gospel is a promise of everlasting life to whosoever believeth in Jesus Christ. We find that even in the passage that we read. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus says, This is true, Jesus says. This is the promise of the gospel. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's the promise of the gospel. It's a promise of everlasting life to whosoever believeth in Jesus Christ and in the God who sent him into this world. Whoever believes will not perish, but will be saved. But that promise of the gospel contains also a warning, a serious warning. And the warning of the gospel is that whosoever does not believe in Jesus Christ will perish. 
and will perish, perish forever. That's what we read in this same, this same gospel written by John in chapter 3, verse 36. John writes, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's the warning or the threat of the gospel to those who do not believe. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve, and God gave to our first parents the gift of life. They received that as a free gift. And Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, would have lived forever in the way of perfect and faithful and thankful obedience to the commandments of God. They would have lived forever there in the Garden of Eden. They would not have died, but they would have had continued to live. They would not have merited a higher form of life. They would not have obtained eternal life in the sense of which we are speaking in the text. But they would have continued to live on that same plane of existence and life that God gave them in the Garden of Eden. And they would have lived that way forever in body and soul in the perfection of the Garden of Eden. But as we know well, they did not obey God's commandments. They disobeyed him. They sinned against God, and they plunged themselves and the whole human race into death. When sin entered into the world, death entered into the world. When Adam and Eve became sinners, they became worthy of death. We became sinners too, and we became worthy of death. We entered into this world, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, as sinners, as worthy of death. And we continue to sin, and with every sin that we commit, we make ourselves worthy of death, of everlasting death. We are no different from all the rest of mankind in that we are worthy of perishing, of everlasting death. But the gospel is that God sent his only begotten Son into the world to give his life a ransom for many, to take upon himself the sins of many, And to give his life as an atonement, as a ransom, a sacrifice on the cross to suffer and to die and to shed his blood for the sins of many, of all those whom God had given to him from eternity. And in that way to accomplish perfect salvation, rising from the dead on the third day. And now God sends forth preachers of that gospel into all nations to proclaim that good news that we who are sinners deserve everlasting death, but God sent his Son to give everlasting life, and that there is only one name under heaven by which we can and must be saved. There's only one name with power to save, the name of Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ with all your heart, and you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. That's the call of the gospel. Serious call that God extends through the preaching of the gospel. But as I said, with that same serious call comes a very serious warning that those who refuse to believe, those who refuse to come to Christ, those who ignore this gospel, those who want nothing to do with this gospel, those who reject this gospel, those who hate this gospel, who laugh at it, mock it, ridicule it, and persecute the body of Christ. 
Those who decide to live however they please, to please the flesh, to seek their own treasures and their own pleasures, they will perish. They will receive what they justly deserve, everlasting death. That's the call and that's the warning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Reformed faith teaches, too, in the Canons of Dort, as we read in the second head of doctrine, in Article 5. The Canons of Dort teaches us that God sent his Son into the world to lay down his life as an atonement for sinners. And we read in Article 5 of the second head, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The canons is lifting that right out of the many scriptural passages that say that promise of the gospel. Whosoever believeth in him shall have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction, to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. And in the third and fourth heads of doctrine in Article 8, we read this, As many as are called by the gospel are unfeignedly called, unhypocritically called. God is not playing around. God is not pretending. For God hath most earnestly and truly shown in his word what is pleasing to him. Namely, that those who are called should come to him. He, moreover, seriously promises eternal life and rest to as many as shall come to him and believe on him. But those who refuse will perish. We know from the scriptures as well, from Acts 13, verse 48, that when that gospel is preached, when that call goes forth, When that warning is sounded, as many as are ordained to eternal life will believe. As many as God has chosen to give to Christ will believe. He will give them that gift of faith. Those who believe will inherit everlasting life. What is everlasting life? I believe the life everlasting, we confess. I believe I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, will inherit life everlasting. But that means, first of all, I believe that I already have the beginning of everlasting life right now. That's what our Lord says in the passage, John 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. In other places, he says, they will have everlasting life. But here, and in other places, he says, he has it already. Whoever believes has everlasting life. He has it. That's what the Catechism says, too. What do you mean by the life everlasting? I mean this. That even as already now, I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Already now. How is it that already now I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy as a believer? It's because I already have the beginning of eternal life. 
Eternal joy flows out of eternal life. Eternal joy is part of eternal life. It's the experience of the blessedness of eternal life. Those who do not have eternal life do not experience the beginning of eternal joy. They may experience all kinds of fraudulent forms of happiness and pleasure through drinking, through drugs, through wealth, through prosperity, through success and fame, but they do not, they will never experience even the beginning of eternal joy. That's a gift that God gives to those who believe. And it's a gift that they've already received before they believed. It's a gift that we receive first when we are regenerated, when we are born again by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit who moves in our hearts and quickens us together with Christ. He regenerates us. He makes us alive. That life is eternal life. That life of regeneration is the beginning of eternal life. The beginning. Only the beginning, but it's the beginning. We have it already now. And having the beginning of life in our hearts, we also experience the beginning of eternal joy. Don't you? Don't you experience the beginning of that joy? We experience that when we feel in our hearts the love of God, when we feel in our hearts his grace and mercy toward us, his faithfulness, his goodness, when we hear his kind and gracious word of forgiveness, and our hearts soar with the beginning of eternal joy. But that's only the beginning. And we also confess that that beginning, that taste, it always slips away from us. And once again, we experience sorrows and fears and doubts and pain because it's only the beginning. But the promise of the gospel is that whoever believes and all God's people do and will believe, they will receive the fullness of everlasting life. That's what the Catechism is trying to express to us when it says, perfect salvation, which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of men to conceive, to imagine. It will be so wonderful and great. Everlasting life means life that never ends. In the most general and basic meaning of the term, life that never ends. That's something my eye has never seen. That's something my ear has never heard. What I have seen is that people live and they die. They live for a little while and they die and they are buried. What my heart can only imagine and conceive is that life is short and delicate, that life comes to an end. And then I see my loved ones in the casket, motionless, quiet, peaceful, and that casket lowered into the grave, and it seems to be the end. But the Lord Jesus promises to us who believe everlasting life, something our eyes have never seen, something our ears have never heard in this life, something we cannot even imagine. What is this everlasting life? This life that never, ever, ever ends. 
but continues on and on and on and on. World without end. But there's more to this everlasting life. What we believe when we say, I believe the life everlasting, is not that God is going to give to us what Adam and Eve would have experienced if they hadn't sinned, but something much greater than what they would have experienced. And that's why we don't look back at the fall of Adam and Eve with the kind of dismay that, oh, if only they had obeyed and the human race could have enjoyed and experienced everlasting life here on this earth, how much better that would have been. We don't do that because what God promises to us is something much better, much greater and more glorious It's the thing that God conceived and determined to give us from all eternity. It's the ultimate goal of his plan. God has conceived and promised to give to us an everlasting life, which can be defined by things such as the following. First of all, that we are going to live forever and ever and ever with God in a new body and soul that, first of all, will be permanently holy. Permanently holy. Adam and Eve were not permanently holy. They were capable of sinning, and they did. But we will have a new body and soul that will be everlastingly holy, perfectly, fully, and completely cleansed of all sin perfectly and thoroughly and fully devoted to God in love, in obedience, in thankfulness, in holiness. We will not be able to sin. And that will not be the revoking of our freedom. That will be the gift to us of the greatest possible freedom that a man or woman could enjoy. The freedom not to sin. The freedom to obey. The freedom to love God and live with God for all eternity totally free from the corrupting power of sin, free from all temptation, free from all enemies, from the devil and all principalities and powers, and from our own sinful flesh. In the second place, we will live forever and ever unto all eternity with God in a new body and soul that will be perfectly immortal, permanently immortal, incorruptible, Powerful, glorious, beautiful, spiritual. A new kind of body and soul. A new level, a new plane of human existence that we have never experienced before. That only Christ has experienced heretofore. But which all who belong to Christ will experience in eternity. We will have a body and a soul thoroughly healed of all diseases and all sicknesses free from all pain and all sorrow, all blemishes, all tears, incapable of suffering or dying or weeping in any way, shape, fashion, or form, but completely enveloped in the love of God, in the bliss and the joyful existence of communion with God as he fills our hearts with unspeakable, unimaginable joy. In the third place, we will live forever and ever and ever 
in a place. The new heavens and the new earth, the eternal paradise of which the Garden of Eden was only a dim shadow and a dim type and picture. We will dwell in a place of perfect and permanent harmony. Perfect, enduring, unending peace between God and man. Between man and man. Between man and woman and woman and woman. Between men and angels. Between all the animals and all the creatures that God will create. Where the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard with the kid. And the child will play at the hole of the snake. And there will be perfect peace and harmony forever. In the true paradise. And fourthly, and most importantly, everlasting life means that we will live forever and ever with God in a perfect, glorious, sinless, beautiful body in the most intimate possible fellowship and communion that God could imagine. Face to face, we will see God. Adam and Eve never saw God. They heard his voice. They never saw him. We will see God. How will we see God? When we see Jesus. God became a man so that we would be able to see him and dwell with him in the most intimate possible fellowship, face to face. Now we walk by faith. Now we look into a mirror, into a glass, darkly, Paul says. But then, face to face. Then our faith will become sight. That, the eternal sight and vision of God in the face of Christ will be the core and the essence of life everlasting. Whosoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but will receive that blessed gift. Believe in Jesus Christ. For believers in Jesus Christ, there's a tremendous comfort then in the face of death, isn't there? And that comfort is, first of all, the comfort of the intermediate state. What is the intermediate state? Well, the term expresses a state which is in between two other states. It's an intermediate state, a state in the middle. It's a state in which we will enter after we die and in which we will continue until the resurrection. That's the intermediate state. The intermediate state for a Christian is the state of his soul in that time. Here we come to those absolutely significant and necessary questions. What will happen to me when I die? Where am I going to go? What am I going to experience? What will it be like? Will I be awake or will I be asleep? Will it be painful or will it be wonderful? 
Every human being asks those questions. We need to know the answers to those questions. What is the state of my soul after I die? We need to know the answer to that question because there are many, many speculations in the world. There always have been from the dawn of time. There have been many different religions, many different philosophies, many different ideas about what happens to man when he dies. We still today are constantly bombarded by those speculations, by those alleged experiences of people who supposedly died and came back to life. And so we need to know what is the answer of God. What is the answer of the scripture to that all-important question? We're bombarded by speculations such as that after this life, our soul will simply be absorbed into the universe. The Buddhist idea of nirvana, that the human person will be absorbed into the great unity of the cosmos. Or the Hindu idea of reincarnation, that after death, my soul will return in the form of some lower creature such as an animal. Or the idea of soul sleep, that after this life, my soul will fall into a deep and dreamless sleep, an unconscious state until the resurrection. Or there is that speculation of the Roman Catholic Church that after this life, our souls will be plunged into purgatory, there to suffer for our indwelling sins. There's the popular superstitious belief that after this life, the soul will become like a ghost or a spirit or even an angel floating aimlessly around in the earth until somehow we are released. What will happen to me when I die? We need to know the answer to that question too because the fear of death persists stubbornly in our flesh as long as we live. In our new man, we have faith, we have hope, we have comfort. In our new man, we lay hold upon Jesus Christ And we believe the life everlasting and the resurrection and heaven. But our flesh is stubborn and persistent. Our flesh doesn't want to die. Our flesh wants to live here on this earth. And so our flesh shrinks back from the reality of our mortality. Our flesh shrinks back from the fact, obviously observable all around us, that we too will die. And therefore, we need to know the answer to the question, and we need to hear that answer preached to us again and again and again. Is there comfort for us as believers when we die? There is no comfort for unbelievers. We have seen that. Although most people in our nation and throughout the Western civilization today would probably say they believe that when they die, They will either sink into oblivion or they will go to heaven. But they don't believe that they will go to hell. Even though they have no place for Jesus Christ in their life, they don't put their trust in him, they don't believe in him, they don't follow him, and yet somehow they think they're good enough people. And they're going to heaven. They stand in grave danger. Grave danger. But what comfort is there for those who believe 
and who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Those who live their whole life in the consciousness that if I die today, if I get in a car accident, if I suddenly drop dead in my kitchen, I cling to Jesus Christ alone. There's comfort for us. And that comfort is the comfort of the intermediate state. As the Catechism teaches us, that after this life, my soul will be immediately taken up to Christ, my head. That comfort is given to us throughout the Holy Scriptures. Already in the Old Testament, this truth was revealed, although only dimly and in a shadow form. Think of old Enoch, Genesis 5, who walked with God in a wicked and evil world before the flood, who had fellowship with God by faith in this life, and we read that Enoch was not, for God took him. Where did God take him? The scripture says in Hebrews 11, he was translated that he should not see death. Think of old Samuel, that faithful prophet of the Lord, who lived in those days of the judges and the beginning of the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David, who died toward the end of the kingdom of Saul. We are told in the scriptures that God sent him back when he was summoned from the most unlikely source, the witch of Endor, so that he might bring a message to King Saul. In his spirit, Samuel appeared to Saul and said to Saul, an unbeliever, tomorrow you will be with me. Although not in heaven, Samuel meant you will die. But Samuel's soul lived on after he died in heaven. Think of Elijah the prophet who faithfully labored in those apostatizing days of the kingdom of God, the days of King Ahab and Jezebel, who walked by faith, although his faith faltered at times and he had doubts and fears, and at one time he said, Lord, just let me die, let me die. And then at last, God sent a chariot of fire driven by angels of heaven. In a whirlwind, Elijah was scooped up from the earth and the eyes of Elisha carried up in a whirlwind into heaven to dwell with God. Think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the other saints who did not experience such an extraordinary thing as those saints, but we are told that when they gave up the ghost, they were gathered to their people, gathered to their people. But the New Testament sheds even clearer light on the Old Testament because our Lord Jesus Christ has come and he is our chief prophet and teacher. And he, more than all of the writers of the Old Testament, has shown us and given to us as believers the comfort that after this life, my soul will be immediately taken up to Christ, my head. Jesus told a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man who had no interest in God as his Savior, but who lived his whole life satisfying the lusts of his flesh in wanton pleasures and treasures, he awoke after death in hell 
and his tongue was parched with the flames of hell. But Lazarus, who lived his life in poverty, trusting in the graciousness and mercy of God, awoke in Abraham's bosom in heavenly glory in his soul. Or think of that episode when Christ came to raise Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha were distraught with tears. Lord, if you had been here, our brother had not died. But Jesus said, don't you believe? I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me will never die. Lazarus, come forth. Or when Jesus said to his disciples in his parting words in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be where I am because I want you to be where I am. My Father's house has many mansions. Or when he was dying on the cross, And God graciously brought that one thief to repentance and faith in the crucified Christ. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today. That's the comfort that we have as believers in Christ. That when we die, which could be any time, our soul will be taken immediately into the presence of Christ. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But also understanding the needfulness that I stay to be with you, to help you. I don't know what I want. And we can be thankful that we don't have to choose. God will take us when it is his time. And when it is that time, our souls will not go to sleep. Our bodies will go to sleep. The scripture teaches that too, that when the Christian dies, our body will sleep. Lazarus is sleeping, Jesus said. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep, those who are sleeping in Jesus. He didn't mean their soul was sleeping. He meant their bodies were sleeping. Cradled in the grave until the resurrection. The intermediate state of the body is that the body dissolves into dust in the grave. But that's called sleeping for the Christian. The body goes to sleep, but the soul never goes to sleep. What will happen to me when I die? What will I experience? What will it be like? Beloved, the moment of death, which is a moment that is so mysterious and so frightening to our flesh, is only frightening in anticipation just like so many things in life. The worst part is the anticipation. But when you actually go through it, and you realize it wasn't so bad after all. 
That's what death will be for the Christian. The anticipation, the fear. Because when we come to that moment, that mysterious moment, when we pass out of this life, we will realize at that point that we had no reason to fear. We will realize and we will discover at that point that the scriptures and the gospel were true. We will realize that experientially, I mean, experientially. What we always knew through faith, we will experience. Death has no power over me. Death has lost its sting. Death cannot swallow me. Death has been swallowed up in victory through the power of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we will discover We will discover that we didn't actually die after all, but what Jesus said was actually true. Whoever liveth and believeth in me will never die. We will not die. But when we come face to face to death, and when we reach the moment of death, death will reach out for us like a monster to swallow and destroy us, but all it will do is touch us with its little finger. That's all it can do. And when it tries to swallow us and consume us, it will only touch us and we will slip out of its grasp. I am persuaded that neither death nor life will be able to separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. I'm persuaded of that. Are you too? What will I experience I will experience that my soul will be immediately taken up to Christ. As my soul slips away from my body, my soul will awaken in the presence of Christ. I will open my eyes in the glories of heaven, and I will look into the face of the one whom I have known all my life from the pages of Scripture. I will look into the face of Jesus welcoming me with a big smile and outstretched arms into paradise to inherit a higher and fuller enjoyment of the life I already have now. He will show me into my heavenly home and mansion. He will say, Come, you blessed of the Lord, inherit the salvation promised to you. That's what I can expect. And my soul will dwell there. My soul, not my body, my soul. In the intermediate state. The in-between state. As my body, ripped apart from me, will be in the grave. My soul in paradise. Until Christ comes again. That's the end of the intermediate state. It's the resurrection of the body. That's our hope. Our hope is for the coming of Christ. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope, is not that after this life we will go to heaven. That's a glorious part of our hope. That's glorious. We don't have to be afraid of death. Our soul will be taken up into heaven. That's not the whole picture. That's not the whole thing. It's not even the ultimate thing. Our hope stretches farther into the future. You see, the souls in heaven, 
even right now, the souls of, of the saints in heaven are crying out to God, How long, Lord? How long? How long? This is wonderful. This is, this is beautiful and glorious. But how long until we are fully avenged? How long until we receive our bodies? How long until the new heavens and the new earth, they long for it? Our hope stretches forth to the final day, the great day. The ultimate goal that God has determined from all eternity, the omega, if you will, of the history of this world, when Christ comes again. As the Catechism puts it, that this, my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. Marvel not at this, our Lord says in John chapter 5. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Marvel not, he says. But oh, how we marvel. Because we have never seen such a thing. With these eyes, we've never heard of such a thing, except in the scriptures, Lazarus rising from the dead. We've never heard of that in the newspapers or on on the television. We've never seen our loved ones rise from the dead. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of us to conceive. We marvel, we marvel. But Jesus says, do not marvel. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. When everyone in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of God. Everyone will hear, everyone will come forth. Some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation. The resurrection of the body will be the culmination of our salvation. And the resurrection of the body does not merely mean that our bodies will come back to life, like Lazarus. But it means more than that. It doesn't only mean that our bodies and souls will be reunited like Lazarus. It means more than that. And you say, well, isn't that good enough? Isn't that wonderful enough? It is. It's very wonderful. Our souls don't want to be disembodied. God made man in the beginning as a body and soul together. We want to be in our body. The body is good. The body is not evil. And that will be a glorious day when our souls are reunited with our bodies. We will feel whole again. Whole. But much more than that. Because not only will we be reunited with our bodies, but the resurrection of the body is the wonder and the miracle of salvation in which Christ will Elevate us. You will elevate our human existence to the highest plane that God has eternally determined. 
the ultimate reality is still to come. Not this life, not this plane, that plane, the higher level. What is that plane? It's the same plane of existence into which Christ emerged in his resurrection. When Christ arose from the dead, he didn't have to roll the stone away. When Christ arose from the dead, he could move in his body, not in his soul, wherever he willed in this world. When Christ arose from the dead, he arose with immortality, incapable of ever dying again or ever suffering again, incapable of ever weeping or mourning or grieving again. All pain taken away. All tears wiped away. All blemishes, all scars, all deformities. We will arise with bodies that are glorious, beautiful, powerful, immortal. That's what Christ did. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ is the true Adam. Adam could never merit that. He could continue to live. He couldn't merit that. Christ came. To give us that higher, better, more marvelous, everlasting gift. Believe in him. Believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The Pharisees didn't believe. Woe unto them, Jesus says. And he says to them, moreover, in the passage we read, verse 39... Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. He said, you have Moses as your witness, but Moses testified of me. Search the scriptures, Jesus says, because the scriptures testify of Jesus Christ from beginning to end as the only one, the only name under heaven that has power to save and give us eternal life. We do think we have eternal life, not because of anything we've done, not because we've made ourselves better by our works, by our will, by our faith, But we know that we have eternal life because Jesus died and rose from the dead and he will save us. Believe in him and you will come forth from the grave on that day hearing his voice with immortality and everlasting life. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, we stand amazed at the wonders of the gospel the treasures of the scriptures, unlocked for us through thy spirit, that we may see and catch a glimpse of those things which in this world no eye has ever seen, and no ear has ever heard, neither has it entered into our hearts to conceive. We thank thee for the promise of the gospel. We know ourselves as so unworthy, but thou art gracious. 
And grant, Father, that we might be encouraged and comforted in our faith this